Let us begin. Lord, we thank you for the sunshine, even when it's cold. We know that you are the source of all these things that you have blessed us with. We thank you for your word, for your spirit, for your son, Jesus Christ. May we be as loyal and fierce defenders of him and your church as those we were about to study today. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to say at the outset that I do this under protest. Because really, each of the people we're going to talk about today should have at least a week or two, rather than one of four people we're going to talk about in one hour. So, that being said, uh, let us begin. So last week we talked about the apostolic fathers who were the early, the, the, the leaders of the church in the post-apostle era. So many of them actually sat under the feet of the apostles and learned from them. And that passage of truth was from Jesus to the apostles to these, now these new disciples was an important conduit of transmission of the Word of God. <clears throat> And like we talked about last, as we talked about last week, most of the concerns of these leaders was edification of the church to, to guide them and to shepherd them. So they were, most of their writings, most of what we know about them is pastoral in nature. And so now we're moving beyond that, away from what we called the apostolic fathers. Now we're going to talk about the next generation or couple generations of leaders of the church. And these men we call the apologists. And they are going to go in a completely new direction in their writing. So we'll talk about that in a minute. So uh, I'm not going to go over every point in the notes. So I would just encourage everyone to, when we're done, to, to read the notes because I don't have time to talk about all of it. Um, but, in a nutshell, the word apologist comes from the Greek word apologia, which means a spoken defense. So these new leaders of the church are going to be writing in defense of the church. So they are going to be defending the church against false teachers that are threatening to turn the church's doctrine away from what was taught by the apostles. And so they're going to be writing to defend that, I mean to defend against that. But in the process of so doing, they're also going to make the first thorough articulations of what the faith consists of beyond the the Bible. I mean, what I mean by beyond the Bible is the first articulations of the faith as it is expressed in the Bible, but synthesizing all of it together. So they're taking Old Testament, they're taking New Testament, they're taking John, they're taking Paul, and they are expressing the faith as we know it today, but for the first time in a cohesive way, pulling all of these things together. Does that make sense? So they're not teaching something new. As it says in Jude, you know, the faith was was once for all delivered to the saints. So it has been delivered, but now it is being disseminated. And in so doing, 
it is being expressed in a cohesive way. So we're going to talk about what they had to say regarding that today. Uh, two things, though, when we talk about heresies, on the last page of the notes, I made a list, and these, these are all big words, they're theological words, I'm sorry, it just is what it is, but these are all uh, different false teachings that the church had to confront in the first several hundred years of its church. And at times, some of these are going to become the majority doctrine. They're going to be new, and they're going to be in vogue, and a lot of people are going to say, hey, this is really cool, and it's going to take some very staunch and very courageous and faithful, persevering saints to resist that and turn the tide and push it back. So the Reformation with Martin Luther and Calvin and the other leaders of the Reformation, that's not the first time the church has had this experience. Next week we're going to talk about Athanasius. And Athanasius is in many ways the ancient Luther. He is going to stand alone against the emperor who is pushing a false teaching down the throat of the church. We'll get to that. Anyway, so I will reference a lot of these by name. If I say, you know, he's teaching docetism, well, just look on the back page and there it is. So, and uh, I'll give the ending away. A lot of these have never gone away. They're still here. Okay. Hoyt is making more notes. So if you haven't gotten any, there will be more in a few minutes. Okay. So back to the front page. Um, so refer back... and. One last thing, that last page, we're going to be referring to a lot of those over the next couple of weeks. So I'm not going to reprint that page with every set of notes, but you may just keep it with you to refer back to, because we'll be talking about it a lot next week and the week after that. So, um, back on the first page, there's, there are many apologists, and we have many of their writings. So... The first section, in section D, I listed a number of the minor apologists. Their influence is important, but not as great as some of the major apologists. And so, if you look at the very bottom of the page, uh, there are six major apologists of the church. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Cyprian of Carthage, and Origen. Today we're going to talk about the first three, and I consider the first three in many ways to be the most important, although the other three are also important. If we have time, I kind of tucked in on the, the second to last page some points about Origen. He is also very important, but he's also a little problematic. So we'll, we'll get to him if we have time, and his treatment may be very brief, as these all are going to be brief. So moving on to the second page. The first uh, apologist I want to talk about is a man named Justin Martyr. And, and also on the first page, I include the dates that they were alive and active, so I'm not going to be, you can just, anytime I bring somebody up, you can just refer back to that to see uh, when they were alive and active. So, Justin Martyr 
is the first of the great apologists of the church. And he is going, we ha, he wrote many, many works, but as in with many cases of these writers, not all of them have survived down to the present day. So we only have a few of his writings, but what we have is really, really important. I'm going to send these books around, just you guys, I mean, we're not going to be talking, like, I'm going to send Tertullian around, we're going to be talking about him later, so you guys can just kind of flip through these, but these are from a set that combines all of the early fathers of the church and all of their writings. So it's, it's a 10-volume set, and it's an amazing treasure trove of wisdom and history and exegesis. I was going to send one on that side, and thanks. So Justin Martyr is going to be in one, and, and Irenaeus, who we're going to talk about next, is in one, and then Tertullian's in another. Please be careful with those. They're out of print now. So, uh, so Justin Martyr as his name implies, was martyred. So he is going to die for his faith. But he was not born into a Christian family. He was going to be born into a pagan family. And he spent his life bouncing around different schools of Greek philosophy. So he spent time with the Stoics. He spent time in the academy. And when I say the academy, that doesn't mean like the academy, like universities, like we use it now, or a military academy. The original academia was a school founded by Plato himself and persisted for about 600 years after Plato, 700 years after Plato. So the academy is a long-lived school that is teaching Platonic philosophy. We'll get to Plato in a little bit because he has some relevance today. Um, and it's not good. Uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I lost my train of thought. So Justin Martyr, okay, here's the Mediterranean Sea. Can you see that? Egypt's down here. Rome's over here. He's going to spend time in Athens, which is right here, and he's also going to spend time in Antioch over here. And he is going to be traveling around, studying in different schools, seeking and questioning, and he is eventually on the, on the seashore going to encounter an old man. This is a, he recounts this in his own words, and we don't know who this man was, but he's going to encounter an old man on the seashore who is going to lead him to Christ. So this is A.D. 140, 110 years or so after the crucifixion. We have the account of a man in his own words being led to Christ by some unknown gentleman on the seashore. I mean, that's just an amazingly beautiful image in my mind. So, and this guy had been wandering through the philosophies of the world, seeking truth. And when he found Christ, he found truth. Or as he liked to say, he called it the church, Christianity. He called it true philosophy. And he is going to use his extensive knowledge of the philosophies of the world to teach pagans the truth of the gospel. And so he is well positioned intellectually and educationally to be able to communicate to philosophers, much like Paul did 
in you know in Mar on the Mar on the Areopagus to to use their terminology to teach truth. Well, it just so happens, and not accidentally, in Scripture that Scripture uses terminology that is meaningful to the pagans. So, what what's the beginning of the book of John? What, is, what, is, what does it say? It, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now in Greek, that reads, in arche hain ho logos, kai logos ton pros ton theu, kai thos hain ho logos. Logos, the word that John uses is a word that is deeply, deeply impacted or used in Greek philosophy. The first Greek philosopher to use it was a man named Heraclitus. When was Heraclitus alive? About 540 years before Christ. So when Cyrus was sending the Jews, or yeah, Cyrus was sending the Jews back to Jerusalem, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Heraclitus was talking about the Logos. And the idea, the, the fundamental idea behind it is this, and you'll see how it pertains to John and why it's important to Justin. There is a word in Greek that means word, and it's rhema, and it's used in the Bible. And a rhema is an utterance. So all these things that I'm saying now, these are rhemas. A logos, or a logos rather, a logos, is a word that is a projection of a fundamental idea that is the basis for its existence. So when I say something, you are hearing it, and in between us, or behind, what me or what, what we're saying is this universal idea. So it's, it, I know that it's, that's crazy, but think of it in this sense. Christ is, when, when he says, when you see me, you see the Father, he's the Logos. So he is that word that has a fundamental idea behind it. Does that make sense? So Plato is going to take this idea. He has this, this whole philosophy called Plato's theory of forms. And the theory of forms is that all the things that we see, the things that we touch, the things that we hear, they are corrupt and they are evil. And that there is a spiritual world where the perfect form of everything exists and all the things in the physical world are corruptions of that spiritual ideal. And so, I lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, so, well this is nothing, I mean, you know, whatever. So, Plato is latching on to this idea of logos, and logos is a central term that is used by Plato in all of his philosophy and many other philosophers. So when John is using the word, when he writes his gospel, 
There is no way he is not using that intentionally because it is such a loaded word. But a Greek will hear that word and they will say, yes, I know what you're talking about. And so Justin is taking that, he's taking that, and by the way, John isn't, and I mentioned this in the notes, John is not adopting this concept from Greek philosophy. He's using terminology that is philosophy adjacent, let's put it that way. But in the Old Testament, there is a similar but different concept. And it's called the dabar, which also means word and also in Hebrew, and also means this projection of a f- fundamental idea. So, in the Old Testament, when you see things like the word of the Lord, that is the dabar of Yahweh. And that is a projection of who God is into the world. It's the same thing. I don't know if everyone's familiar with the concept of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, but there are many, many instances where we believe that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christophany. That means the second person of the Trinity, who is eternally existing, is making himself present before he is incarnate as Christ. But what's, what does angel mean? I mean, what does actually mean in Hebrew? It just means messenger. So he's speaking the dabar of Yahweh. So he's, he is, when they see the angel of Yahweh, they are seeing the Father, but it's not the Father. Does that make sense? And we're getting into Trinitarian theology here. We'll get back to that when we get to Tertullian. The point is, Justin is taking these teachings and he is explaining to the pagan philosophers how it pertains, like, how they were on a track, they got deviated, and that the truth really is found in Christ. So they were on a track, they were seeking, and they were finding chunks of truth, but not the full truth. And so Justin is going to point them in the right direction. So, that's one of his major contributions is, is... figuring out how to use that language to make the connection to the pagan world. There's going to be some reaction to that and and justified, and we'll get to that in a little bit too. Um, But another thing that Justin is going to do is he is going to write a defense of the church against the charges that are laid to it in terms of Immorality, unpatriotism, atheism, cannibalism. Why would they think why would pagans think Christians are cannibals? Yeah. They're hearing these stories about eating the body and the blood. I mean, you know, they're not allowed in Christian meetings. The Christians were very protective of who was present at their bodies. They, they were if they were found to be Christians, they were to be executed. So they were very careful who set foot in a church. It wasn't, you know, back then it was not, 
bring your friends to church so we can evangelize them. That's not, that was not the mindset. So they were very protective. So pagans didn't know what was going on at these meetings. And they heard these rumors. And so Justin is going to write a lengthy account. And it's in the books that I'm, I sent around. You can, I mean, the whole thing is in there. Uh, about how he describes, among many things, what they do at the church meetings. And I'll just read aloud or this uh, rather lengthy passage from Justin. He says, first he talks about the Eucharist and what it, the, you know, the Lord's Supper and what it actually consists of and doctrinally. And so that, that's the immediate precedent to what this excerpt is, is talking about. So he says, and afterwards, and as I read this, just think about what we do today. He says, and we afterwards continually remind each other of these things, and the wealthy among us help the needy, and we always keep together, and for all things wherewith we are supplied, we bless the maker of all through his son Jesus Christ and through the Holy Ghost. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles, that's the New Testament, where the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president, the pastor, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray and as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. So the Lord's Supper is being sent to those who are not present at the meeting. And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit, and what is collected is deposited with the president who succors the orphans and widows, and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want, and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us, and in a word takes care of all who are in need. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, Saturday, and on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So that's a description of a church service a hundred years after the crucifixion. It's not terribly different from what we do today. I mean, I mentioned on the top of the third page, there's a few things that we should all find familiar in that. So, <clears throat> Justin is writing that to Roman authorities, and I don't know what good it did. Ultimately, he is going to be martyred for his faith. So, and he, yeah. So, okay. So, the next person, any questions about Justin before I move on? No? 
Okay. This is somebody, I mean, all of these guys that I'm talking about, these are people we should be familiar with. I mean, we now owe our church to them. I mean, in terms of teaching our, teaching theology, understanding the Bible, just perseverance in the face of persecution to continue the church. I mean, these are the fathers of the church, and they're going to die for it. This was not an easy time to be a believer. It's going to get worse, though. Okay, the next gentleman that I want to talk about is named Irenaeus, and he is a giant of the church. Uh, He is going to, we talked about last week about apostolic succession, and I talked about a man named Polycarp. Irenaeus is a disciple of Polycarp. So he he was taught by a man who was taught by the disciple whom the Lord loved. So that's his, that's where his training comes from. He's also very smart, and he has the scriptures at hand, which he is mighty with. So Irenaeus comes from Smyrna. This is where Polycarp was at. You'll notice Smyrna is close to Patmos, which is where John was exiled. So you can see just the geographic pedigree. But eventually, Irenaeus is going to migrate all the way over into France, and he is going to settle in the city of Lugdunum, which nowadays is the modern city of Lyon, France. I don't know where the French get Lyon out of Lugdunum, but I don't know French phonetics really well, so they're crazy. Not really. Anyway, I'm trying to be funny. I'm not funny. Tertullian's funny. We'll We'll laugh with Tertullian in a little bit. Um, so Irenaeus is going to move to Lugdunum, and he is going to serve in the church in that city, and he is going to witness the leader of that church be martyred. So that time period was a really challenging time, not just for the church, but for the Roman Empire. So the emperor is Marcus Aurelius. He is the last of what we call the five good emperors. So when we get to the end of him, it's a long slide downhill for a while. Um, And during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, he is going to be more vehement in the persecution of Christians. He is not going to authorize an empire-wide persecution, but he is going to be more forceful in asserting that they be that they be killed. But for the empire itself in the West, this is a time when we, what we call the Marcomannic Wars, and it's, it's the first really big disaster that's going to befall the Roman Empire when it's at its peak. And the Germans that are up in this area are going to invade, and they're going to breach the empire, and they're going to come all the way into Gaul and all the way down into Italy. And so for about eight years, Marcus Aurelius is going to be fighting a very brutal war against the Germans. The Alemanni is the name of the German tribe, which if you, ever, if you speak Spanish or you speak French or Portuguese and you ever wondered why Germany was called Aleman, it's because this German tribe, the Alemanni, really uh, imposed their presence on Latin speakers early on. So, uh, 
But in the context of these wars and these invasions, Marcus Aurelius wants everybody marshaled to defend the empire. And what can't Christians do? They're not going to offer God, you know, even that small pinch of incense to the genius of the emperor, to that divine spirit that empowers him to rule. He's not claiming he's a god, but he's claiming that the gods have empowered him to rule. And the minimum that a Roman citizen needed to offer to be in the good graces of the law was to just throw a pinch of incense in the fire and say, you know, bless Marcus Aurelius and his divine authority. And can a Christian do that? No. And so they are considered unpatriotic, and they are going to be hunted. So, <clears throat> that's, that's the, the circumstances in which Irenaeus, when the bishop is martyred, is himself going to be elevated to the leader of the church in Lugdunum. And when he finds himself in leadership, the, war, the Marcomannic Wars have wound down, but a new problem is now confronting him. And that is the plague of Gnosticism, which had been around for a while and had been growing, but now in his area is now in full flower. So what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is the, the merger so this is the danger of where Justin Martyr wasn't going, but where those who listened to him could have gone, I mean the pagans. Gnosticism is the merger of Plato's philosophy with Christian imagery. So the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis. So that which just, all it means is knowledge. And they are called that because they claimed to have, in opposition to the apostles, a secret knowledge, not the teachings of the apostles, that would point people to, cl to be closer to God. But what did they teach? Well, they taught a lot of different things because there wasn't one single school of Gnosticism. So you can't just blanketly uh, categorize all Gnostics. Does that make sense? I mean, you got to be careful with that. But at the core of their teaching, what they teach is that the physical world, we're talking, goes right back to Plato, the physical world is a total corruption. The God of the Old Testament was a fallen evil God who created the world fallen and evil, and that the God of the New Testament is good, and that Christ came and redeemed and offers a way for us to escape the corrupt physical and go into the good spiritual. What do they deny? Well, aside from all Trinitarian doctrine, they also deny that Christ had a physical body. So there is a teaching, I mean, so if you look on that back page, you know, almost all of the, where'd my back page go? Uh, almost all of those teachings are all anti-Trinitarian. They all in some way are teaching against 
some aspect of what the Bible teaches about God, Christ, and the Spirit. So, some of the early ones, and these are, I just put them in alphabetical order generally, so they're not in chronological order. Some of the early ones are docetism, which taught that Christ had no physical body, that he was a spiritual apparition who appeared to the disciples in the world, but he had no physical body, was not human. The opposite of that is Ebionism, who taught that he was so good that he was, you know, deemed to be the Messiah and therefore became God. Uh, Another one was modalism. And boy, you got to be careful with this one because there are modalists in the church today that don't know that they're modalists. But that was something that has been a problem in the church from the very beginning. Modalism teaches that there is one God who operates in modes that there is that sometimes it's the Father, sometimes God is operating as the Son, sometimes God is operating as the Spirit, but they are all modes of operation of one God. They are not distinct persons that are one God. There is a big difference there. And that is, so it's a very, when people haven't been taught Trinitarian theology, and it's just like, what? what do I think of this? What do I, I mean, it's like kind of the, it's kind of like you run home to mama and that's kind of like your basic default. Well, that kind of makes sense. On that note, I would encourage everyone to read a book called Delighting in the Trinity. I would encourage everyone to buy it, read it, pass it on or buy more and pass it on to someone else. It's by Michael Reeves. There's a copy of it in the church library. It's really good. You'll thank me later. Anyway, moving on, back to Gnosticism. Yes. Let's not get into that right now. You can, let's ask, ask me after class. Um, and if, yeah, so if anyone thinks Gnosticism has gone away, it's not. It's still here. I mean, there's not a continuous line of Gnostics from then till now, but if you wonder where all of this uh, gender and identity confusion comes from, it's Gnosticism. You know, the body is, is corrupt, the body is broken. What matters is who I am up here and, and here. The spiritual soul part of me is male or female, regardless of what my body is. That's Gnosticism. So, Irenaeus is going to write the master class refutation of Gnosticism. And it's in a book that he is entitled Adversus Heresis, which is Latin for against the heresies. And it is specifically written to refute Gnosticism. So, uh, boy, so much time and so little to talk about. Um, okay, so, uh, let's, so when he's writing this, he is preoccupied with emphasizing 
the divine nature of Christ, but also the physical nature of Christ. So, you know, just one example of that, when, when Irenaeus is writing at Versus Hieresis, he, he quotes from most of the New Testament, but one of his favorite books to go back to is Matthew. Why Matthew? Because Matthew is constantly emphasizing the humanity of Christ, not at the expense of the divinity, but he's talking about Christ as the descendant of David, who is the Messiah. So the human lineage, the human element, the human body of Christ is a huge theme in the Gospel of Matthew. And so Irenaeus constantly wants to go back to Matthew to emphasize that. So here he says, he, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry guys, he, Jesus, fought and conquered. On the one hand, he was man who struggled for his fathers, that's the human part, through his obedience, canceled their disobedience. On the other hand, he bound the strong one and freed the weak and bestowed salvation on his handiwork by abolishing sin. For he is our compassionate and merciful Lord who loves mankind. Had not man conquered man's adversary, the enemy would not have been conquered justly. Again, had it not been God who bestowed salvation, we would not possess it securely. So he's emphasizing the humanity and the divinity of Christ. And that's a theme that's going to run throughout Irenaeus. Body, 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 body. God, 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 God. <clears throat> um, but all of this teaching that he does is going to be consistently and deeply rooted in the Scriptures. So he is, he is he, when you read Adversus Hieresis, after the first book, it's five books, six books, the first book is just talking about all of the different Gnostics and what they teach. There's not a lot of Bible in that. It's all, but then he moves into his refutation of it. Um, here from book three, he says, to which course many nations of those barbarians who believe in Christ do assent, having salvation written in their hearts without paper or ink, and carefully preserving the ancient tradition, believing in one God, the creator of heaven and earth. And again, right there, I mean, that's biblical language, but he's emphasizing heaven and earth. What do the Gnostics teach? They teach something different from that. And all things therein, by means of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who because of his surpassing love towards his creation, anti-Gnostic, condescended to be born of the virgin, that is anathema to the Gnostics, he himself uniting man through himself to God and having suffered under Pontius Pilate and rising again and having been received up in splendor shall come in glory, the Savior of those who are saved and the judge of those who are judged and sending into eternal fire those who transform the truth and despise his father and his advent. So, next page. Um,
You can read those other quotes there. But, you know, one thing I really valued about Irenaeus, and so I, I included this little quote. He only has two works that are complete in extant today. So one is Adversus Hieresis, and the other is called On the Apostolic Teaching. So one is meant for the pagans to read and be refuted and come to belief, hopefully. The other is for an edification of the church. That's on the apostolic preaching, encouraging people, stay true to the teaching of the apostles. Don't go to anything but that. And he says in that, he says, So by means of the obedience by which he obeyed unto death, hanging upon the tree, he undid the old disobedience occasioned by the tree. So that which was done from the the tree in the garden, he undid with the tree of the cross. So, and in that, he is just bringing just a beautiful unity of Old Testament and New Testament, which is in and of itself a refutation of the Gnostics. So I would encourage everybody to find a copy of Irenaeus and read it. He is amazing. But we must move on. So I'm not going to talk about Origen today because I only have 15 or so minutes. Maybe I'll get to him for a minute. I'll say a word about him. But the last person that we want to address today is Tertullian. And Tertullian is from... Carthage, down here in Africa. Now, it may seem like a foreign thing to us, but back in the Roman times, this part of Africa right here was one of the bastions, the foundations of Christianity. There are many, many, many saints. And when I say saints, I'm not saying it in the Catholic sense. I'm saying saints as it's used in the Bible, great believers, if I use it in this class, that's how I mean it. You understand that. There are many saints that come from this part of Africa right here. And Tertullian is one of them. Has anyone ever heard of Augustine of Hippo or St. Augustine? This is, Augustine is also from North Africa. So this is a place that is critical to the early church. And Tertullian is going to come out of it. Now, Carthage at the time was one of the largest, and some people assert it was the second largest city in the western half of the Roman Empire, second only to Rome. And, you know, archaeologically, we estimate there was about a half a million people in Carthage. Now, this is Roman Carthage because the Romans fought Carthage in the Punic Wars several hundred years before this, and they completely tore the city down. You know, they famously burned it, killed all the men, sold the women and children into slavery, hauled whatever didn't burn off out, and then sowed salt into the soil so nothing would ever grow there again. And as Tacitus, the Roman historian, said about the Romans, he said, they make a desert and they call it peace. So, but Julius Caesar... 100 years later, is going to refound Carthage as a Roman city. So it is a thoroughly Roman city. Incidentally, even though I don't have time for this, it's one of my favorite topics. Uh, when Rome fought the Punic Wars, which were 
roughly between 264 and 204. And then the third one lasted for a year in 146 BC. There are three of them. The Carthaginians were, the Romans call it the Punic Wars. Punic is Latin for Phoenician. The Phoenicians are the Greek name for a people that called themselves the Kinanu. What do you think that is? Who are the Kinanu? They're the Canaanites. So the Canaanites took to the sea and settled the Mediterranean. There are cities in Spain that have essentially Canaanite names. In Carthage, in Africa, they have uncovered 20, over 20,000 cremated remains of children. Why would they find that? Because, yeah, they're Baal worshipers. They, they practiced child sacrifice. So that's who the Romans were fighting. Uh, the greatest general of Carthage was Hannibal. Well, what's his name? Well, in, it's actually Anibaal, which means Baal is mighty. So the Romans were fighting Baal worshipers. How crazy is that? So that means Old Testament-style Baal worshippers were coming out of Spain with elephants and crossing the Alps to invade Italy. Fun stuff. Anyway, uh, so Carthage was a very cosmopolitan city with a great deal of educated people, and one of those educated people is Tertullian. Uh, it's believed he was a lawyer. We don't know that for certain, but the language that he uses when he writes and his style of argumentation is very much indicative of somebody who was trained in law. Regardless, he was extraordinarily well-educated. He's probably the most well-educated of all of these guys that we're talking about right now. Um, and he was just brilliant, brilliant in his argumentation, and he had the most... Uh, acidic wit. Uh, he, he's actually, I, I think he's, he's a pretty funny writer. I mean, when you read him, you get some good chuckles. Um, but he is going to write prolifically in defense of Christianity. He, is, he was born a pagan. He enjoyed all the things that that in, entailed, the orgiastic lifestyle, um, the games where gladiators and animals were slaughtered. That was his life. And then he was saved. And he was saved because he witnessed how the martyrs went to their deaths that ate at his soul. And later on, he's going to say, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, the church part we add in English, but it's when you read it in Latin, that's the reference. So the quote is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And he is going to Martyrdom is going to be very important to him. Uh, so important are the writings of Tertullian that, A, he is referred to as the father of Latin theology. He is the first great writer of the church to write in Latin. And, you know, Latin was used pretty much, it's still used by the Catholic Church, I mean, it was the, the language of the church for many, many, many centuries. But he was the first, and in many respects, the greatest. Uh, Cyprian, who was going to follow after him, he was going to become the leader of the church in Carthage about 50 years after Tertullian. And Jerome, 
who we may talk about in a couple weeks, uh, who is also one of the great fathers of, of the church in the post-Nicene era, both of them are going to refer back to Tertullian and call him the master. And, you know, Cyprian, who was another, he was a great leader of the church, and in the great persecution that's to come, the first empire-wide persecution, Cyprian will be the final bishop of the church to be martyred in that great uh, attack on the church. So, Cyprian is saying Tertullian is the master. So, um, and Tertullian is, uh, he is, he's difficult because he is often antagonistic. He, I mean, he is, he's looking for a fight with pagans. I mean, he's like, bring it. You want to argue this? Bring it. That's kind of his basic mentality. And, um, but when he writes, he, he says of himself, he has a certain humility when he talks about himself personally, and he describes himself as faith seeking understanding. You know, he, he has faith, but he is still looking to fully know God. So, um, so one of his great writings is a work called Adversus Praxion, or Against Praxius. And Praxius was a monarchist, or a monarchianist. And you can look on my list of, uh, of uh, heresies what that was. And Tertullian is going to write this refutation of monarchianist teaching that is resonates to this day, for it is in this work that the doctrine of the Trinity and the very word Trinity itself first came to the church. So if you have ever wondered, you know, people say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, if you ever wondered where it came from, you can thank Tertullian. So, and I gave the quote there in Adversus Praxion, where he first uses that term and and describes proper Trinitarian theology, which is what we, the the church today, we here at First Baptist Mount Shasta, that is what we affirm. So, in terms of the articulation of that as coming from the Scriptures, you can thank Tertullian. So... um, But Tertullian, in his typically antagonistic way, uh, he is driven, compelled to search for purity in the church. I mean, to, to pursue the church's purity, I guess is a better way to put that. And so he looks at the track that Justin Martyr took, and I don't think he actually addresses Justin Martyr specifically in any of his writings. By the way, we have 31 works of Tertullian that survive, but we know he wrote hundreds. So only 31 have, have come down to us today. 31 is still a lot. Those two books I passed around, I mean, one of those volumes is just is nothing but Tertullian, and it's, it's dense. And he is, so anyway... Um, 
So, you know, in so he he sees what he sees is paganism and Gnosticism making inroads into the church, and this deeply concerns him. So one of the there was a a, a popular form of Gnosticism that had achieved some level of acceptance in the church. And that was, it's called Marcionism. And it's, it was taught by a guy named Marcion of Sinope. And Marcion is from this area right up here on the Black Sea. And ultimately, I mean, this got popular, and then it got repudiated and kicked out of the church because it was false teaching. It was straight-up Gnosticism. But he dressed it up really well so that people were like, oh, yeah, that sounds kind of cool. And then he starts teaching them that, and then they're like, oh, yeah, that's not so cool. Um, but he, he was classic Old Testament God evil, New Testament God good. He only liked the writings of Paul. He did not like the writings of any of the other apostles. The only gospel he accepted was Luke's. What apostle is Luke associated with? With Paul. But he wouldn't even take Luke's gospel in its entirety. He had an edited version that he liked to use. Where have we heard this before? So uh, Tertullian is going to write um, a, you know, a long work, a five-book work against Marcion. Um, but ultimately, he is going to say this, and in different work, also against other Gnostics. He sees the track that Justin Martyr took and how, where Justin was trying to use Greek philosophy as a gateway to get pagans to look into the truth of the gospel, what he sees now is that that's been flipped and that pagan, specifically Greek philosophy, has been brought into the gospel. Does that make sense? And so he's seeing where, you know, Justin had a, a good track, it's been flipped now. And so he's going to say, and this is, a, this is a famous response to that, he says, and where, what was the epicenter of Greek philosophy? It was Athens. So he says, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church, between heretics and Christians? Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon, who had taught himself that the Lord should be thought in simplicity of heart, not the obfuscating way of the Greeks. Away with all attempts to produce a modeled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. For this is our honorable faith, that there is nothing which we ought believe besides the gospel. So he is, he is casting aside everything. He where Justin was not open to Greek philosophy in terms of the truth of it, but he recognized that they hit on some things that rhyme with the church and wanted to use that as a way to bring people into the church. As he says, the true philosophy. Now Tertullian is turning around and saying, Athens has nothing to do with Jerusalem. You know, the pagan world has nothing to do with the gospel. So there's going to be a tension. And honestly, Irenaeus kind of falls right in the middle of that. So between these three guys, you really have a spectrum. And that was the church. I mean, the church now is not monolithic. Now, is it? No. 
there's a spectrum of different beliefs. Some err on the side of legalism, some on, err on the side of libertinism or the willingness to listen to the world. I mean, there's a spectrum. There was a spectrum back then, and we see that represented. But all three of these men themselves were true to the gospel. And Christ was always the focus of what they were pointing people to. I mean, he was what people were pointing. He was what, Christ was what Tertullian was pointing people to. I'm sorry, I'm getting my merds wixed. Um, yeah, I said, ah, you got it. <laughs> um, okay. The pro, and I'll, I'll end on this. Or maybe I'll end on origin for like 30 seconds. But uh, the problem with Tertullian is he is going to get so fed up with the church, that antagonistic mindset that he has, that there, there was a new teaching called the New Prophecy that came out of Phrygia, which is this area right here. So Colossians... The church in Colossae, that's in Phrygia, in Asia Minor. Um, there was a, a new teaching that came out of there, led by a guy named Montanus. And they were called, believe it or not, Montanists. And they, in a lot of ways, echo Pentecostalism today. So there's a heavy emphasis on the Holy Spirit. There's a heavy emphasis on ecstatic utterances and things like that. Now, ultimately, the Montanists are going to be repudiated by the church. Tertullian is going to insist that they had no new doctrinal teachings, although you know, I do find the fact that they would have new revelation problematic. It certainly leaves the door open for some new teachings. But that's the same problem we have today with, with you know, a lot of Pentecostal churches. Um, so, it's, Tertullian is going to, but the thing that he is drawn to in the Montanists, really, is their call for purity in the church for a more ascetic, simpler church. Get rid of all of the trappings. Get rid of the, the growing church bureaucracy. It's not really a thing yet, but Tertullian sees it. And he sees in these Montanists a cry to return already to, you know, 170 years after the crucifixion, to return to a simpler church. And so he's, he's not going to join the Montanists, but he is going to be Montanist-friendly, and because of that, because of that act later in his life, he is going to be considered problematic to a lot of people. But regardless of what he may have done later in his life or how deeply he was affiliated with them, the ideas that he wrote and articulated in the prime of his career are going to be I mean, they are teaching the truth of the apostles. And the ways that he articulated those truths are going to be picked up by other people and they're going to run with it. And here we are today. We're still running with Tertullian. 
So, I mean, I want to judge him because he may have associated with a group that may not have been good. But, you know, I mean, Solomon, we judge Solomon in the same way. He, he was still in the line of Christ, and, you know, we still look to him for wisdom. I mean, his words in Proverbs are still Holy Scripture, you know. I mean, so we have to kind of, you know, separate things finally and, and see truth where it is and recognize somebody's mistakes where they make mistakes. Does that make sense? We should not, in my opinion, reject Tertullian. We can't. I mean, here we are. We're still running with him. So I'll, let me just, 30 seconds, so let me just say origin, and man, you could see I just squeezed him in at the last page, uh, and I even had to make the font smaller. Um, but origin, if you think Tertullian's problematic, origin's even more so. Um, but he was the greatest, as great a scholar as Tertullian was, Origen was the greatest Christian scholar of the age. And he made a, a significant number of contributions to the church in its scholastic endeavors, especially the transmission of the texts of the Old Testament and the New Testament and, and things of that nature. And, you know, the biggest problems that we have with Origen really are his his interpretation of the Bible. I mean, the methods he used to interpret the Bible, because he, he really liked to go into allegory, and he was not he was not a literal grammatical historical exegete of the word. Um, so, you know, we differ with him on, on some things because of that. But when the first empire-wide persecution comes, Origen is going to be tortured just cruelly beyond cruelly. And he will stand fast for his faith. And he doesn't, he isn't martyred, but his body was broken beyond repair. And he lived another seven or eight years, but he was just a total cripple, castrated. You know, you name it. I mean, he was a broken body, but a, a healthy mind. And even in his crippled state, continued to, to work for the church. So, I will end with that. Are there any questions? No questions? Amen. Okay, well then let me close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the testimony of these men in their faithfulness and even in their error that through them we may be guided and chaperoned, that the testimony of the Holy Spirit still speaks through them as you worked in their lives. Pray that we will receive that and be strengthened and let the Spirit continue to work in ours. In your name we pray. Amen.